like to do this morning, in keeping with this theme of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke, the second chapter, Luke chapter 2. And what we will do is we'll take a look at a very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, Luke chapter 2, particularly verses 8 through 14, and we will look and consider together what I am calling, number one, the surprise of Christmas, number two, the wonder of Christmas, and then thirdly, the glory of Christmas, the surprise of Christmas, the wonder of Christmas, the glory of Christmas. Christmas was a surprise to those shepherds when the angel appeared. Christmas is a wonder to you and me concerning the person himself who appeared, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Christmas is to the glory of God the Father, even as the angels remind us as they sing and say, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. And so what I hope to do again this morning is to make a compelling case for each one of these points that again we see in Luke chapter 2, the surprise, the wonder, and the glory of Christmas. So before we begin, let's open in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it is good to be gathered in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on this morning, this morning in which we remember and recollect the birth of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that while Christmas means many things to many people, Father, to us as your people, to us as your people, it is our remembering that Jesus Christ, your Son, took upon himself human flesh in order that he might die for each and every one of us. We thank you, Father, that we are among the people for whom Christ died. We thank you, Father, that we are gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, that your word is opened up to us that we might see afresh these great truths concerning the birth of our Savior. So, Father, be with us, we pray, in this time in which we consider your word. Show to us afresh, Lord God, your Son, and may we glory with the angels at the thought of his incarnation. So grant these things, Father, we ask, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles, please, and, and turn once again to Luke chapter 2, and I will read verses 1 through 20. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought first her fourth firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger." And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 
And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And, he, and, and they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Well, my brothers and sisters, here we are this morning again, remembering the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. A great, great day indeed. A day in which it is right for us to celebrate. A day in which it is right for us to say to one another, Merry Christmas. There is a reason why we as the people of God say Merry Christmas. Because it is a merry thing to know that the eternal Son of God came into the world to save sinners like you and me. So again, we are very, very happy on this blessed day. But as I said before, what I hope to do from this passage of Scripture, and we'll be looking particularly at verses 8 through 14, what I hope to do this morning is to show to you these three things about Christmas. Number one, the surprise of Christmas. I think in, very, in a very real way, Christmas was a surprising thing to those shepherds as they were there in the field. Did you notice how the passage of Scripture reads there in verse 8? And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Well, certainly this was a surprising thing. I'm sure the angels were as surprised as you and I would be if an angel showed up here this morning. It would be something of a surprise to us. And so the angel, excuse me, so the shepherds indeed were surprised on that morning. And I think there's a number of re reasons why we can kind of uh, contemplate or consider their surprise. I think the first thing, as I just said, the fact that an angel showed up. You know, angels, again, as we look in the Word of God, we see a number of things about angels. Number one, we see that they accomplish the will of their Creator. Over and over again, there they are doing the will of God. And what may have been somewhat unnerving to these shepherds is that they would have realized that there were times in the history of the people of God when angels came to do the will of God in judgment. And so these shepherds were there, and maybe they were wondering, what is, he, what is this angel doing? Is he coming with bad tidings? Is he coming with judgment? What is this angel doing here? So there would have been a surprise there. The second thing that we see about angels and the, and, the and their ministry in the Word of God is that angels not only carry out uh, the, uh, the will of God, angels also adore God Himself. We see in, in Isaiah chapter 6 that great passage of Scripture where Isaiah has this vision of God Almighty and there are the angels saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Angels accomplish the will of God. Angels adore God. But there are other things, that, there's another thing that angels do, and that is angels announce the purpose of God, do they not? They announce the things of God, and this is what was happening on this day. The angel came announcing the message of God, and what, are you ready? A surprising message it was. It was a message of good tidings. And why would that be surprising? Well, stop and think of the world of that day as well as the world of this day. You know, if God would show up, if God would show or send a messenger uh, to this fallen world, we would certainly understand that that messenger may indeed bring a message of judgment because we know that the world is worthy of the judgment of God. 
We look around and we see mankind in sin and we see man going very happily on their way in sin. And so if God were to send the messenger to our day, we would understand if it would be a message of judgment. And it was the same in, in the day of the shepherds as well. The world at large, again, had pretty much turned its back on God. Uh, there were men who were rising them, raising themselves up to be, again, great potentates in the world. Again, commanding, commanding things that, again, they just thought of their own will to do. And you see, the world, again, was hostile then, even as it is now. But the angel comes with a message of good news. And this was surprising. When we consider, again, not only the angels coming and the surprise of that, but when we consider who the angel went to, the angel went to the shepherds. And some of you probably know from your studies in the past that shepherds were kind of a lowly uh, class of people. Now, their status in Israel was very low, which is surprising in and of itself. And why is it surprising that shepherds would be such a, a lowly class? Well, stop and think their greatest king, David, was a shepherd. So it's surprising to think that shepherds would be so loath, so, so, uh, so thought of in such a lowly fashion. Stop and think that God himself oftentimes made great promises that when Messiah would come, what would he do? He would shepherd his people. When God was to judge the nation, what would he do? There would be false shepherds that rose up. There would be shepherds that would seek after their own will and not the will of the people of God. And so again, this idea that the, that the shepherds had this lowly status is surprising in and of itself. I think the greatest cause for surprise by way of the shepherds' lowly status is the fact that God himself refers to himself as the shepherd of his people. The Lord is my shepherd, David says. And so again, that the, that the angels would show up to the shepherds is surprising. That the, that, the, that the shepherds would have this lowly status is somewhat surprising. But what it reminds us of is this. God oftentimes goes to the lowly, does he not? God oftentimes goes to the outcast, does he not? And let individuals see themselves as, as looked down upon in the world. That doesn't mean that they are looked down upon by God. You know, there's really a, a wonderful thing about Christmas that we ought to incorporate at this time. We would say at Christmas time, and we would say at every time of the year, that God would even extend himself to the high and mighty of this world, and he would call them to humble themselves to come. But there seems to be something in the scripture where God says to the lowly, he lifts them up and he says, come. It's an amazing thing to see, isn't it? And so what this passage of scripture reminds us of is something of a surprise. Is that God sends this great message of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ to these lowly shepherds. But as I said before, he comes with good tidings and that's a surprise. Because as I said, in that day and in our day, the world is really hostile to God. I think of Psalm 2, uh, and it's amazing in this time of Christmas preparation how many times my thoughts have moved to Psalm 2 where you have the opposition of the worldly leaders against the purposes of God. It's almost an, ama it's almost an amazing thing. Who would think that man in his kind of uh, uh, material worldview would actually be rising up against God? But this is what happens. Sometimes men rise up purposely against God. And so what we see is we see a world that is hostile to the things of God. We see this on a personal level as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, The natural mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Again, this hostility, not only on a national level, but on a personal level as well. So that an angel would come with good tidings as a surprise, isn't it? And what that reminds us of is this. God not only comes to the lowly, 
through an angel, God comes even to the hostile with the message of redemption. And that's why the angel says, Behold, I bring unto you good tidings of great joy. Why is it good tidings? Look at the people to whom God comes. He comes to the lowly. He comes to the hostile. And can I say it? He comes to everybody in between. And that means he comes to you. And that means he comes to you. And this message of Christmas is to you. And that's something of a surprise. And let me say this about this surprise of Christmas. I hope and I pray that, that you and I never lose sight of the fact that when it's all said and done, it's a very surprising thing that God should come to us with the gospel. That when it's all said and done, it's a very surprising thing that Christ should shed his blood for me. It's a very surprising thing when I think about it that God died not only for the sins of the world, but for this sinner right here. Oh, I hope your experience of, of God in the gospel, while I hope it's always increasing, I hope you never lose sight of the great wonder, the great surprise that God saved you. You've heard, the, you've heard me say this before about John Newton, that statement. When he talks about the, the, the wonders that he will see in heaven. He says, I'll wonder that over the fact that I'll not see some people there that I thought I would have seen. He says, I'll wonder over the fact that I'll see some people there that I never thought I'd see. And he says, the greatest wonder of all is that I will find myself there. I hope you never lose sight of that, my brothers and sisters. Christmas is something of a surprise that God and his glory should come to such as you and me. And so again, that's, that's something of the surprise of Christmas. But the surprise of Christmas quickly moves us to what I would call the wonder of Christmas. And the wonder of Christmas is really bound up in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see this in the passage of Scripture as we go on. Notice what we have here. Again, in, in verse 10, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Well, again, here is the wonder of Christmas. And the wonder of Christmas is bound up first and foremost in the fact that a Savior is sent. You know, when we think of it, this is a, an amazing reality that God sends his Son into the world. And the, the Apostle Paul knew something of this wonder of Christmas. We see him speaking of it in Romans chapter 5, verse 7. Romans chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says this, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. Again, this surprise, maybe for a good man some would die. He goes on to say this in verse 8 of chapter 5, But God commends his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is the wonder of Christmas. Christ died for sinners. And you see, the angel again comes with this message of good tidings that Christ not only came for sinners, but Christ has died for sinners. Oh, the wonder of Christmas. But the wonder of Christmas is really brought to our attention in the four things that we see about our Lord Jesus Christ in this statement in the 11th verse. We're in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. And this morning, in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, notice what the angel says. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Well, what I want you to do is I want you to consider with me the four things that are set before us concerning the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice what the, Savior, what the uh, angel said? The angel said, for unto you is born this day, unto you. Well, you might remember that in the, in the previous weeks, we looked again at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. You remember that passage of Scripture? But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou art least among the cities of Judah, yet shall come forth one unto me, God says. 
And we made the point at that time that when the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, he came into the world to do the Father's will. It's specifically we can say that God, that Jesus Christ came into the world to do the work of his Father. And so in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, God is able to say, there shall come forth one unto me to do my will. True, and we're happy for it. The Lord Jesus Christ said, the Father always loveth me because I do the will of my Father. Last week we took a look at, at, at Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. And here we saw the great promise. And you remember how that promise was given within a context of conflict. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the passage that, that Rick read for us this morning. That, pa- that promise, that messianic promise was given in the context of, 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 a pro- of the oppression of the people of God. And there was, the, there was Judah under the oppression of the Syrians. And there was Judah in a very difficult situation. And what was God doing? God was making a promise. And what does he promise to the people, to the people of Judah? He says this through the prophet, for unto us. And so there we see the Lord Jesus Christ coming now for a people. Coming for the people of Judah. And do you remember what we said last week, how significant it is? That when those messianic promises are given in their original context, there is a sense in which the promise transcends the situation. And you remember what we said about that? The reason why the promise transcends the situation is because the true situation that humanity faces, the true problem is not national oppression. It's the oppression of sin. And so God gives a promise. And in that promise, again, the the national situation is taken care of. God sends a deliverer for his people in that day. Oh, but there is a coming deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the promise transcends the problem. And in that transcending answer is the person of Jesus Christ. But now in this passage of scripture here, Luke chapter 2, it's no longer God saying unto me, one shall come forth. It's no longer a prophet of Judah saying, unto us a child is born. Now it's an angel saying, unto you. That's Christmas. Christmas is a personal Savior come for sinners. Listen to the word of the angel again. For unto you is born this day. And the first thing that we see then about our Savior in this passage of Scripture is this, is that he's a personal Savior. That's exactly what you need to know. That's exactly what you need to hear. That's exactly what you need to embrace. Why do I say that? Why do I make this emphasis on the, on the fact that Jesus Christ is a personal Savior? Well, first and foremost, because that's what the text is reminding us of. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. But secondly, I want you to think of this. Because when it's all said and done, isn't sin a very personal matter? Isn't sin very much the thing that most truly defines, maybe not most truly, hopefully the gospel most, most truly defines you. But you know sin is a very real revealer of character, isn't it? And again, my sin is exactly that. It's my sin. It has my fingerprints all over it. If sin could have DNA, it would have my DNA on it. It would have your DNA on it. You see, sin is a very personal matter. You see, again, one day you and I will stand before God and give an account. Oh, on that day, I hope you're standing before God the Father with the blood of Jesus Christ covering your sins. And that can happen. Why? Because Christ is a personal Savior. And so this reality of sin as a personal matter. The Lord Jesus Christ recognized this. He taught this. Remember what he said about sin? Sin isn't that which which is just outside of us. Sin is that which proceeds from the heart. Sin is that which proceeds from, from the soul, as it were. And so again, sin is a very, very personal matter. The psalmist in Psalm 69, verse 5 says this, O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. 
You see, sin is a personal matter. My sins are not hid from God. Sin is a personal matter, as I said before. The writer of Hebrews says this, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of whom we must have to do. The ESV puts it this way. Uh, all things, and let me put my glasses on here, I'm sorry. Uh, the ESV puts it this way. All things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Another translation puts it like this, even more to the point. Everything is uncovered and exposed for him to see. We must answer to him. And so as sin is a personal matter, I'm saying to you on this Christmas Eve morn that Jesus Christ is a personal Savior. Yes, your personal sins can be laid on that personal Savior. That's what the angel says for unto you. So I want you to see and understand that Jesus Christ, again, is a personal Savior. But that's not the only thing that we see here. Did you notice again what the angel says in, in verse 11? For unto you is born this day in the city of David. For unto you is born this day. Oh, what does that point us to? That not only is our Savior a personal Savior, He's a present Savior. Unto you is born this day. Jesus Christ is a Savior for today. You read over and over again in the Scripture, and the, and the emphasis is always on the now. Why? Because tomorrow is not promised. And it's this day that you need a Savior. And it's this day Jesus Christ has come to save. For unto you is born this day, the angel says. Oh, you see, and again, you and I, we need a present Savior. Oh, it would be a wonderful thing to, to, to go through life knowing that at the end of my days, all will be well. But every truly redeemed person wants a present Savior as well as a future Savior. Every person who has experienced the grace of God or the damning power of sin wants a present Savior. Every person who, who undergoes uh, the pains of conscience wants a present Savior. And that's what Jesus Christ is. He's a present Savior. And He needs to be a present Savior. You know why? Because sin is a present problem. And one of the things that we see about sin over and over again, and some of you have heard me say this before, what is sin? And one way we can define sin like this, sin is an act of principle of moral evil that compels actions that are dishonoring to God and destructive to my own well-being. Sin, active principle of moral evil. It's not merely an isolated act. And I, know, I know some of you have heard me say this before. And so what you need in the face of that is a present Savior. Oh, I thank God that Jesus Christ is a present Savior. I thank God that Jesus Christ gives peace of mind right now. I thank God that there can be an embrace of the Savior, this wonderful, this little babe in a manger. I thank God that he can be embraced in such a way as to cleanse even the conscience from sin. But you know, as I said before, the scripture over and over again presses the now. In one sense, it never allows for a preacher to say, will you take care of this tomorrow? It never really allows that. God is sometimes gracious. I remember even before I was saved, I don't know, I remember before I said, I thought, well, you know, when I meet, you know, <laughs> when, I, when I meet the right girl, maybe I'll settle down and get right with God and all that. And God was very gracious to me. God didn't owe me another second. And there he was being gracious. There he was being kind. But I don't have, I don't have that privilege to say that to you. I'm not here preaching my experience. I must preach the word of God. And the word of God says, now is the day. Today is the accepted time. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Why is that? Because, my friend, you're not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not promised another day. You see, again, you don't know the day. It's like that man, and some of you have heard me quote this, this passage of Scripture before. It's like the man in Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. 
And he felt within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow my, all my fruits and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, you don't know the day. You know that now is the day. You know now is the day to receive Jesus Christ, but you don't know the day when God will call you to give an account. And by the way, we, we all will give an account. We see this in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or whether it be evil. And so you see, Jesus Christ comes then, not just merely as, not as a savior for tomorrow. He's that. If you should reject Jesus Christ today, does that mean that God is not going to be merciful for you tomorrow? I'm going to be very honest with you. I'm, going to not, I'm, I'm purposely not going to answer that question. Because the scripture calls me to call you to faith and repentance today. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day. And so we see our Lord Jesus Christ then here in this passage of Scripture, not only, as, not only as a personal Savior, but as a present Savior. Oh, and I hope and I pray that you see the need for Christ here presently. The third thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is that not only is he a, a personal Savior, and not only is he a present Savior, but he's that promised Savior. You know, there, there was humanity fallen into sin in Genesis chapter 3, and, and God in a very real way is not content to leave humanity there. God, in a very real way, takes up the cause of man. And what does he do? He takes up the cause of man and he gives promises. Promises. God is the, God is the great God of promises. And you see, this is why faith is so important. Faith is so important because it is recognizing that God is able to bring the past all that he promised. Tonight in our evening service, one of the things we're going to see, we're going to see that the promises of God at times are very large. They're like a thick, thick rope. That you could seem like, seem like hang the world upon you, you know, stretch out the world upon, so to speak. There are other times when those promises seem to get as thin as a thread. And we're going to see tonight in our, in our passage of Scripture that we're going to consider that, that the whole promise of God comes down to the, to the courageous actions of one woman. One, one lady does the right thing. But God makes promises. And whether they are hanging on a bull rope, or whether they are hanging on a thread, they will certainly come to pass. And so what does God do? He confirms his promises. He makes promises there, as I said before, in Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. He makes promises there in, in, uh, in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 9. Again, uh, a child shall be born, a son shall be given. He makes promises again there in Micah 5. Uh, Bethlehem is going to be the birthplace of the Savior. And it all comes to pass, doesn't it? Because this Savior is a promised Savior. He's a Savior that's promised to you. Can't say it enough. I really can't. He's a Savior that's promised to you. And so there he is, a personal Savior, a present Savior, a promised Savior. But the last thing I want you to see about the wonder of Christmas. Again, we've already considered the surprise of Christmas. You remember what the surprise of Christmas is? That Christ should come to the lowly. You remember what the surprise of Christmas is? That Christ should come to those who are hostile against him, yet he comes. The wonder of Christmas 
is that this one who comes, he is, he is, a, he is a personal Savior. He is a, he is a present Savior. He's a promised Savior. Now we're going to see here that he is a powerful Savior. Oh, this is most significant. I think everything else that we see about the wonder of Christmas is all bound up in this fact of the power of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Have you noticed how many times in the word of God the gospel is connected with the word power? You know the most famous passage along these lines, Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God and the salvation. Listen to some other passages of scripture uh, that we see here by way of, uh, by, by way of uh, the, uh, the, the power of, of, the, of the gospel. We see it in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. For our, power, excuse me, for our gospel came unto you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. And what I want you to see here is this, is that the gospel is oftentimes put in terms of power. And why is that? Because as I said earlier, sin is a present power that needs to be broken. We can put it like this. A greater power on the cross was exerted to break the reigning power of sin. And whatever your sins are by way of their ability to compel you and to lead you to do those things which are dishonoring to God and destructive to your own soul, the gospel is able to break that power. And I say this to you, not only to, not to, to those maybe who are not saved, I say this to those of us who are saved. Do we know this power of the gospel? Do we know this power of Jesus Christ as a powerful deliverer, as a powerful savior? It is Christ the Lord who has saved you. And when we toy with sin, when we allow sin to have dominion over us, Paul says, no, sin will not have dominion. Why? Because we are no longer under law, but under grace. God has done a work, you see. And this is the wonder of Christmas. The wonder of Christmas again, that this one who comes to you, oh, he's a personal Savior. How do you thank God for that? He is a present Savior. Oh, again, you thank God for that. A promised Savior, but a powerful Savior. That's your Lord. That's the babe who's laying in, in your mind, who's laying in that, little, uh, in that little feeding trough. Never knew what a manger was until a few years ago, maybe five, six, I don't know, eight, ten years, whatever it was. Thought it was a manger, a manger. That's where you put little babies. No, that's where you put the feed for the animals. That's where you put, that's what a manger is. And there's where our Lord Jesus Christ comes. He comes lowly, you see, to go to the lowly, to go to the humble. As I said before, he's more than willing to say to the, to the mighty, Come! He's willing to say to the, to, the, to, to the rich and the powerful, humble yourself and come. But to the lowly, he lifts them up and he says, come. And they all come through the, through, the, through the humble grace of repentance and faith. And so again, this wonder of Christmas. But I said we would also bring out not only the surprise of Christmas and, and not only the, the wonder of Christmas. I said that we would also bring out the, uh, the, the glory of Christmas. And we see this in our passage as well. And you saw it there. We read it already. But look what, the, look what we see here. Uh, again in verse 12. And this shall be a sign unto you. And you shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace, goodwill toward men. You see, this is, the glory of, this is the glory of Christmas. And if I can put it to you like this, I would say this. Whenever Jesus Christ is presented as a personal Savior, as a present Savior, as a promised Savior, as a powerful Savior, God is glorified in the highest. You see, God is glorified in the highest in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is glorified in the highest when His Son is set forth. God is glorified in the highest when a preacher stands up and says, A Savior is born unto you this day. 
When an angel says, a Savior has come for the, for, the, for the hostile and for the lowly. You see, this is the glory of Christmas. The glory of Christmas is that, Father, is that the Father is glorified in the highest and making provision for the salvation of the lost. God is glorified in the highest when His Son comes forth to save His people. And so we see again this, this surprise and this, and this wonder and this glory. Well, I have to finish along these lines and the message here is going to take something of a turn. Because this idea of the surprise of Christmas, I, I want you to see and understand that, that the surprise of Christmas is, is not only what happens here on the pages of Scripture. I'm fearful that the surprise of Christmas will be also on that day of judgment. When unrepentant sinners stand before God and be surprised that all these things were actually true. That will take the that will take the wonder of Christmas and it'll turn it into the horror of hell. But there will still be a glory there. It's hard to fathom. But I'm convinced that since all of the things that we see by way of attributes are perfections in the being of God. I'm not ashamed or afraid to say that God will even be glorified in the execution of, of his wrath and justice upon sinners. He's, he's glorified in the highest in the salvation of sinners. But since wrath is a perfection in the being of God, and I don't say this in a way to threaten, I don't say this in a way to scare, but this is the reality of the matter. This is what's so surprising about Christmas. God sends his son for you and for me. And if you know yourself like you ought to know yourself, you will never cease to be surprised that this message comes to you year after year after year after year after year after year. And God is there and he is waiting. My friends, come. Come to the Savior. Let this be truly a Merry Christmas. Let this be a time in which God is glorified in the highest. How? Why? Because you and me have left off the dominion of sin. And we've taken on the yoke of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we, it's almost difficult to end the Christmas message on such a sobering note. And I would ask and pray, Father, that uh, you would be very gracious to all those who are here. I would pray, Lord God, that you would work in the hearts and minds of each and every one of us. Oh, Father. Everything that Christmas is, we confess that we have failed to live up to it. Everything that has been promised to us in this birth of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes we have treated very slightly. And what we would ask and pray, Father, then on this day is this, is that you would give us grace. Oh, Lord God, give us grace, we pray, to see us as you see us, to respond, Lord God, as you would have us respond, to see in this humble babe the very means by which you are glorified and exalted in the highest. Oh, Lord God, grant these things. Let this Christmas be the truest Christmas that we've ever celebrated through our embrace of Jesus Christ, either for the first time or through the embrace of Jesus Christ afresh. Grant these things, Father, we ask. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.